Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 352 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ben Bova. He's a six-time winner of the Hugo Award, a former editor of Analog Magazine and a former fiction editor of Omni Magazine, and past president of both the National Space Society and the Science Fiction Writers of America. He's also the author of more than 130 works of science fact and fiction. And we'll be speaking with him today about his most recent short story collection, New Frontiers. And now here's our interview with Ben Bova. All right, so we're here with Ben Bova. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so the first story in New Frontiers is about building a golf course on the moon. So how did you come up with that idea? I married a woman who plays golf. Hmm. I don't. But uh, she got me a little bit interested in the game, and I was wondering what it would be like to try to play golf on the surface of the moon. And that's how the story generated. And so what, what, what would it be like to play golf on the surface of the moon? Well, in the first place, you'd be in a spacesuit because the surface of the moon is airless. And uh, the second thing that you would feel is that the gravity is only one-sixth that of Earth, so you could hit the ball a lot farther. In fact, um, in the golf course that I wrote about in the story, some of the holes are over the horizon. So you you really have some challenges. Hmm. Right, because the moon is so much smaller than Earth, the horizon is much closer. Yes. But also because the gravity is so much lighter that the ball will travel a lot farther, and there's no air to impede the ball's progress. Right, so what they actually end up doing in the story is putting sort of lights shining up so that you know, so you know yeah, where the... Poles. Yeah, you put the poles big enough or tall enough so that you could see them from the T, and you put a light on top of them. Right. Then you also have the issue that there's not really any grass on the moon. Right. <laughs> you have to fake it. So talk about in the story how they uh, how they end up actually building this golf course. Well, they just smooth the surface, which is called the regolith. It's sort of like uh, beach sand in composition. And you smooth it out and paint it green. Hmm. So which is that something you would want to do, play golf on the moon? I don't want to play golf on Earth, and <laughs> I certainly don't want to play it on the moon. Hmm. No, it's a, really, it's a really interesting story. I really enjoyed that. I'm glad you did. And there are a bunch of interesting you know, scientific premises in this, uh, in this book that were kind of new to me. So, for example, in your story, A Country for Old Men, there is a, in a ship, and it has sort of a, a scoop to scoop up hydrogen to fuel the ship. And yes. the the ship ends up passing into a to a region of space where the concentration of hydrogen molecules is is too low really to keep the ship going. Um, is that a real thing? Those sorts of low hydrogen regions of space. Yes, yes, there are areas of high concentration and areas of very low. Uh, and we're talking here about you know maybe one hydrogen atom per square cu- or per cubic meter which isn't enough to keep a hydrogen fusion reactor going. So you have to find more plentiful areas. Mm-hmm. So if we were to send out a ship like that, what sorts of um, precautions could they take to avoid running into 
that problem? Try to map out the hydrogen abundance in the region of the uh, uh, star field that you're going. And how would you do that? You look. <laughs> hydrogen gives off a signal. Uh, um, I think it's a 31 centimeter radio signal. And astronomers on Earth have been able to map out uh, clouds of hydrogen, streams of hydrogen. Uh, not in enormous detail, but the general picture. Still in the story, they run into an area that's, that's low in hydrogen, and this creates a problem. Right. So how about in the story Mars Farts, you talk about methane on Mars? <laughs> what is, is that a, yeah. a real thing? Yeah, that's true. There are signs of methane. Uh, astronomers have been looking at this for some years. Methane appears in the Martian atmosphere, usually in the local Martian springtime, and uh, pretty quickly disappears. And the question is, what creates the methane? Where does it come from? Uh, it seems to me the simplest explanation is it is the excretions of Martian creatures living beneath the surface. Is that widely agreed upon, or do do other people no. think it's more <laughs> no. like... No, nobody really has agreed that there's Martians living below the surface. But when we get there, I'm sure we'll find some. And I'm not talking about <laughs> human-like creatures. Talking about worms, right? So, what would be some competing uh, theories for the methane? Uh, as far as I know, there's been no valid theory, no reasonable theory. It just exists. Uh, it might be something completely abiological, but uh, I haven't seen a good explanation yet. So, I think my story can still hold up. Yeah, well, certainly hope we find out about that sometime soon. Yeah, well, when we go to Mars, we ought to keep a biologist in the in the team. Would we need to send humans to Mars to find out, or is there any way that a robot could, uh, could test that? I think it probably could be done by robotics, but it's much simpler to do it with humans. Trouble is, the humans are difficult to keep alive. <laughs> yeah. The robots the robots are easier to maintain. Yeah. Yeah. So in the introduction to your story Waterbot, uh you mentioned the formation of the company Planetary Planetary Resources. And yes. I've just seen in the news that it seems like the company's having difficulty and I was just curious what you think about the the near term prospects for asteroid mining. Uh that depends on your definition of near term. I think the asteroid we have already found uh, offered an enormous bonanza of material wealth, and sooner or later we will exploit them. You know, I, I feel like a, a kid on the shore of Spain in 1491. The Atlantic Ocean is lapping at my feet, and it's a barrier. Europe, Western Europe was occupied by the losers driven out of the rich mainland of Asia and pushed until they couldn't get pushed any farther. 
they couldn't navigate the Atlantic Ocean. But eventually, people built ships, learned how to build ships that could go across the ocean and open up a new frontier. And not just a new frontier of material wealth, but a new frontier of ideas and ways of living. And we're at that point now. We're a hundred miles over your head is the frontier of space. And wherever you are, you're only a hundred miles from that. That frontier offers tremendous gains, tremendous natural resources of energy and raw materials, enough to make every human being on Earth quite rich. The question is, who's going to go out and claim that stuff, and how's it going to be shared back here on Earth? So we're living in exciting times. It's, it's the beginning of a new age of exploration and development. Right, and I think people tend to think of space exploration as expensive, but I heard you say that actually we've the, the space program has returned more wealth to us than it's cost even now, even not mining asteroids or anything like that. Yep. We spent we spent twenty billion dollars in the sixties on Apollo. We have gotten back whole new industries. You know how how much money are cell phones worth? The uh Industrial and the economic benefit of space is way in the black. It's very, very good as returns uh, for what we have spent as tax dollars. Right, absolutely. And I wish people, more people were aware of that. Yeah, I, th I think they, they know it intellectually, but it hasn't hit them where it, where it counts. But we'll see. Sooner or later, people will be able to buy into space operations as stockholders or as tourists. You know, I've, I've got a character that I've written a lot of short stories about, Sam Gunn. Sam wants to open a tourist hotel in space. And his the motto for his hotel is, if you like waterbeds, you're going to love zero gravity. Hmm. Right. So Sam Gunn was actually the protagonist of the, uh, or one of the main characters, I guess, in the um, golf story I mentioned. Uh, yeah. Sam Apart, it's the Sam. Yes. Sam's a character I've been dealing with for oh, more than 30 years. He's a rogue, an entrepreneur, and uh, he makes money in space and blows it very quickly trying something else. I heard you say that the character was loosely based on Harlan Ellison. No, not really. Um, although I did send, when I did the first Sam Gunn story, I sent a copy of it to Harlan to make sure he wasn't offended. Because although I haven't based Sam's physical description or his entrepreneurial activity on Harlan, ah. I think a lot of science fiction readers would see similarities. So what similarities would they see? A loudmouth, aggressive, skirt-chasing guy who's kind of brilliant. Where did that name Sam Gunn come from? Because it makes me kind of think of the science fiction author James Gunn. 
Yeah, so did James Gunn when he, <laughs> when he read the story. <laughs> now, the, the, the name just popped into my mind when I was first thinking about it. Uh-huh. Uh, there was also a, a character at one point in the book named Mance Brunner, which made me think of John Brunner. Was that any, was that a, any reference there? No, not really. I try to avoid getting people upset. <laughs> I mean, there was this story, uh, Scheherazade and the Storytellers, where you say yeah. a number of oh, the characters. Oh, well, that, that was different. That the, the Storytellers in that story in ancient Baghdad are sort of funny uh, evocations of contemporary science fiction writers. Right. So the premise of the story is that Scheherazade needs stories to tell every night, and so, and she's sort of crowdsourcing it, this 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 job to all the storytellers in Baghdad. And and you say, yeah, that um, so w- which uh, which science fiction authors kind of make cameos in the story? Well, I'll leave it to the reader. You know, I don't <laughs> want to give away the secret, but take a look at the names, and you'll see thinly disguised names of uh, prominent science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. All right, well, so let's talk about your story, um, Bloodless Victory. Uh, so uh, you, you have this uh, idea that in the future, court cases might be settled with virtual reality duels rather than court cases. Could you talk about how you came up with that idea? Oh, dueling is an old, old concept and, and was at one time a way for gentlemen to settle their differences. Uh, virtual reality allows you to have a duel without any danger without any injuries, and uh, except perhaps emotional. And I thought it might be an interesting idea to see if virtual reality duels could replace lawsuits. You know, our courts today are just overwhelmed with uh, personal lawsuits, uh, most of which are trivial except to the people <laughs> involved. So I think VR duels would ease the burden on the courts, provide more emotional satisfaction, and uh, make lawyers poorer, hmm. all of which is devoutly to be wished. So if you had to duel somebody in virtual reality, what sort of duel would it be? Well, you and and your opponent have to get together and decide on a venue for the duel. You know, do you want to do pistols at at 20 paces or uh, water-filled balloons at arm's length? Um, Once you have agreed on a a venue for the duel, you perform the duel in virtual reality. Right, but I'm asking you personally, which if you had to choose a weapon or... You know what? What do you think you would have the best uh, best shot at? Saber. Do you have a lot of saber experience? I used to a long time ago, but I still got a saber here in my office. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, I think it's an excellent weapon for finding justice. Have you had any experiences with the legal system where you're like, "Wow, I would much rather be fighting a duel than dealing with this." Uh, I haven't had much experience with the legal system for a long, long time, but uh, 
I do think fighting a duel with your opponent would be much more satisfactory, even if you lose. Yeah, it sort of puts a puts a note of finality on the whole thing. Yeah. I killed the son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> or he killed me. Yeah. I also wanted to talk to you about, so this story, Inspiration, features a bunch of historical figures prominently as characters, including Lord Kelvin. And yeah. I, I thought that was, he's a really interesting character in the story because um, the story says he was acknowledged by the world as the leading scientific figure of his generation. But he was completely wrong about so many important aspects of science. Yeah, he really didn't open his eyes to the new possibilities. And meeting the teenage Albert Einstein seemed like a logical thing to do in the story. Right. So so in the story, there's a time traveler and he is trying to... Uh, arrange a meeting between H.G. Wells and a young Albert Einstein in hopes that H.G. Uh, uh, Wells' ideas about time travel from the time machine will inspire Einstein to come up with the, the theory of relativity. Yep. And it works. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember anything about the how you came up with that story or what the genesis of the idea was? I have to think about that for a minute. But uh, the idea that a young Einstein would be crushed by Kelvin and the rest of organized science, saying that we've we've just about discovered everything. Uh, this generation of scientists will put a few dots over I's and cross a couple of T's, but there's very little new to really be discovered. And that would really upset young Einstein. I mean, to me in the story, it almost suggested that Einstein believed in the power of imagination in a way that Kelvin didn't, and that set him apart. You have to remember in the story that Einstein is 16 and Kelvin is, what, 60, 68 or so. so. There's a difference of ages and a difference of outlooks. Right. And, but I mean, Kelvin, he's very hostile to the idea. I mean, he's having this conversation with H.G. Wells about the time machine and it just yeah. doesn't want to hear about it at all. Well, you would get much the same reaction today from most scientists. The time machine sounds kind of absurd. So have you had experiences like that, writing science fiction where people are, are just hostile to the, the whole enterprise? I've known people who are hostile to the whole enterprise of science fiction. But as more and more science fiction turns into science fact, I think it's more difficult to complain about it. One thing you said that struck me is you were talking about how when you were offered the job as the editor of Analog, that the publisher said one reason why he chose you is because you were the only <laughs> candidate whose stories he could understand. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think that's thanks to my newspaper upbringing, write clearly. A story should not be a contest between the author and the reader. Make it as easy as you can for the reader, and your your ideas will get across better. I mean, so do you think that the, that in some sense the hostile reception of science fiction is due partly to 
people just not being able to to understand the stories that they're they're written into. No, I think the hostile attitude towards science fiction is mainly from people who've never read any science fiction. I think they get their attitudes about science fiction from reading the uh, from seeing the dreadful movies that Hollywood makes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's definitely true too. Um do you think that the, the Hollywood movies have been getting any better recently? No. <laughs> They're just getting more expensive. Yeah. Um, another science fiction author you mentioned in the book is Gordon R. Dixon. And yes. uh, you say that his story, Call Him Ward, that the, uh, the, the character of the Emperor of the Hundred Worlds, you say that it was as powerful characterization as I have found anywhere? Yep. Gordy was a wonderful writer. He he really was, and a wonderful friend. Although we lived half a continent apart, it was a rare year when we didn't visit each other one, one way or the other. And uh, I've got a million wonderful stories about Gordy. Uh, I mean, do you want to tell one of those million stories? <laughs> All right. A half a dozen of us in, are in New York. We had dinner at a very nice restaurant. We go outside. It's raining a little. And we hail a taxi cab. We all jam into the cab. And the cab takes us to the hotel where most of the uh, guys were, were staying. And as we get out, the cab driver starts complaining that we didn't leave him much of a tip. And Gordy turns around and starts talking to the cab driver. It starts out very politely, but the driver was getting snotty. And suddenly I saw Gordy reaching in through the driver's side window, grabbing the guy by the shoulders and starting to pull him out of the cab through the window. And Gordy said, well, we can settle this like gentlemen. And the cab driver is desperately trying to get the car in gear and drive away. <laughs> so. That was Gordy. Very, very polite, but there came a trigger at some point, and he got rather uh, physical. And although he was a very self-effacing man, Gordy was a sizable guy. And I think the cab driver was sort of semi-terrified. It sounds like a situation where you would want to have a virtual reality duel. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Could really come in handy there. So, um, so talk about what was so powerful about the characterization of the the Emperor of the Hundred Worlds. Um, the ability to be the Emperor of the Hundred Worlds, the ability to make decisions and control destinies. Um, I, I thought Gordy did a marvelous job of with relatively few words of showing that character. And I decided to write a story about him, but I, I got Gordy's permission first. Right, so tell us about your story. It's called The Last Decision. Yep. It's set in a the future. There is a, an empire of a hundred worlds the capital of that empire is not here on Earth or in the solar system. It's on another planet orbiting another star. 
Earth is kept as a sort of a rural community so that Earth's, the people of Earth's uh, bloodlines are not altered by civilization. And this is a basis for the genetic studies throughout the empire. Um, then they find that Earth's sun is going to erupt, going to be a mini nova, and scrub the Earth clean of life. And a young woman scientist believes she can save the sun. And the official scientific uh, community doesn't believe her and wants no part of it. It's too different from what they're doing. And she gets to the emperor himself and convinces him to let her try. And that is the emperor's final gift to the empire. So say a bit more about why they're keeping Earth as this preserve. They're trying to make sure that the genetics of the rest of the population on the other worlds doesn't drift doesn't too far. Doesn't vary too much, right? You caught it on the first bounce. <laughs> I mean, do you think that that would be if you were the emperor? Do you think that that would be an important thing to do to not let the to to keep humanity as one um, species, basically? It depends on on the attitudes of the time. Do you want to make sure that Earth's various children, as they spread through the galaxy, uh, remain pretty close to the original germline? Or do you want to let them develop into different forms? I think most people, based on what I know of people today, would want human beings to remain as human as possible. Uh, so, so that I mean, that's most people. But is that is that your view? I mean, do you care if humanity uh, speciates or not? No, I think humanity will do deviate. I think all living creatures move uh, along their own developmental lines, and human beings who settle on planets far from that are far physically from our own, they will change physically over time. Right, because it seems to me that especially with genetic engineering, that we're looking at a future where there are different species branches of humanity. That's possible, unless we decide that we don't want to do it and make that illegal. That could happen. Right. I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting is that in this this universe of the last decision that most people are, or at least most, most wealthy people are able to get these rejuvenation treatments, but the emperor has uh, foregone that purposefully. Could you talk about that? Um, as the emperor himself says, you wouldn't want me unaltered you know, for a oh, thousand years. That way lies a freezing of, of the empire's Vitality. Right, because you want younger people coming in, I guess, with new ideas. Well, and... look at it this way. Suppose Adolf Hitler had won World War II and lived for a thousand years. That would be a terrible situation. Yeah. 
Well, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, but even if it's not somebody who's bad, um, you know, just uh, it's it's hard for people to, you know, to change their minds uh, over time. We've seen it. We've seen it in history. That uh, ancient kings, as they get older, they get more rigid, less willing to move in a new direction. And the society begins to wither. I mean, one thing that I, I sort of wonder about sometimes is, yeah, if uh, life extension technology continues to improve, how do you keep society progressing and, and not just have people's um, social attitudes and things freeze? And yeah. one thing I wonder about is just could you, um, you know, like uh, after you're 100 years old, do you not have the vote anymore or something in order that the, the, the younger generations coming up are still driving the direction of society? Do you think that that's something that might uh, be wise? It's an idea for a good science fiction story. Hmm. I'll say that much for it. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll write that sometime. Good. Um, because, uh, in addition, because you, you have another story called in trust, which also deals with life extension in a way, uh, this one deals with cryonics. Uh, and it's kind of this interesting issue of if you are going to, uh, there, there's a character in the story, he's a billionaire and he, uh, is diagnosed with fatal cancer and, uh, he's planning to freeze himself and hopefully in a hundred years, they'll be able to uh, revive him and cure his, his, his cancer. But then the issue is, how does he preserve his fortune through all those yeah. decades? Yes. Yeah. It really is a tricky problem. It certainly is, as he finds out. <laughs> Who can you trust while you're salted away in, in cry, cryonic per, uh, suspension? Right. And so he considers, you know, different insurance policy like life insurance and the church uh and stuff do you do you have any if it were up to you if you were in that situation uh what what bet do you think you would take to preserve your fortune uh why preserve it why not use it wisely and and put it to good use personally i would put it into space developments Right. I mean, that's certainly a, you know, a more uh, generous way to go. Um, yep. Because I, I, it does raise the issue, I guess, that if a lot of people, uh, a lot of wealthy people are having themselves frozen and trying to preserve their wealth, is that just pulling a lot of the resources of society out of circulation in a, you know, unproductive sort of way? I don't think so. I think you preserve your wealth mainly by multiplying it. It does, you know, it doesn't stand still. The world doesn't stand still, and your wealth isn't going to stand still. There's the old joke about the guy who had himself preserved, and he's awakened a hundred years in the future. And the first thing he does is call his broker or the descendants of his broker, and finds that his fortune is now a hundred a hundred billion dollars, and he's very happy. Until the operator breaks <laughs> into the call and says, uh, you've gone overtime on your call. Please deposit another billion dollars. <laughs> well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Gregory Benford, and he's actually a proponent of, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know, is a proponent of cryonics. Has he, uh, yep. has he tried to talk you into that? Nope. 
He's never because because he was taught he was saying that a lot of uh, he had talked to a lot of science fiction authors. He mentions I think Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Robert Heinlein that he had uh, you know tried yeah, to sell but, them on cryonics. Uh, they were all of a earlier generation, and I don't think they were ready for that intellectually or emotionally. I mean, so uh, what uh, What do you think about chronics? Is that something you would ever consider? I would, yeah. But I, it's like pilots tell you, never fly a plane, a new plane on its first flight. And, you know, don't be the first one to go into cryonics. But sooner or later, many people will, and uh, it might just be a way to extend your life. So you're waiting for the technology to uh, to develop a little bit more before you take the plunge, so to speak? Yes. Yes. Uh, speaking of Gregory Benford, you actually dedicated this book to him. Do you want to talk a little bit about your your relationship with him? Oh, Greg is a, an old friend, and uh, although we seldom see each other nowadays, as we live on opposite sides of the country, um, he is a very, very interesting and charming fellow and a damn good writer. Yeah, I really had a good time talking to him. I mean, he's just so smart and knows about so many different subjects. Mm-hmm. Do you have any stories about him uh, fighting with cab drivers or anything like that? <laughs> not not Greg, no. <laughs> no, he seemed very agreeable. He seemed like a very agreeable person. A very sensible person. <laughs> um, so uh, this your story, uh, The Question, it starts with an epigraph by Noam Chomsky. Uh, he says, as soon as questions of will or decision or reason or choice of action arise, human science is at a loss. Could you just yeah, talk about Chom why you chose to start off the story with that with that quote? Just to show what a jerk Chomsky is. <laughs> science is all about choice, all about Enlarging our freedom of action. So, have you ever uh, have you ever interacted with Chomsky at all? No. No, we've never met. You ever think about sending him an email, telling him how <laughs> wrong he is? No, he he doesn't need to hear from me. <laughs> um, I guess I'll ask you. So, one of the stories in the book it's called the question. And the premise is that there are aliens passing through the solar system, and they offer humanity the chance to ask them one one question and only one that they'll answer. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to tear humanity apart. <laughs> yeah, everybody That's... thinks they should have the uh, honor of asking the one question. Right? Is that how you came up with the idea of the story? You're just like, wow, this would this would just tear people apart if this were to happen. Yeah. Yep. Because uh, different characters, I mean, a lot of the, the characters in the story, they come up with different, you know, really good questions. Uh, you know, how does your star drive work? Uh, you know, some answers to questions in fundamental physics would be good to know. Uh, yeah. How do we deal with overpopulation, things like that? Yeah, everybody wants to ask a question that pertains to his special interest. And doesn't want anybody else's special interest to get the question. 
So I won't spoil the ending of the story, but is the question at the end of the story, is that what you would ask if you had one question or would you have, would you have <laughs> something else in mind? The question that is asked at the end of the story is out of sheer desperation. And I wish the human race could do better. Right. But so that's not. So what would you ask if you had one question you could ask aliens? Uh, that's a good. That's a good question. Oh, <laughs> uh, I suppose eternal life, or at least life extension. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think about the future that we're headed for? I mean, the um, in the last decision, you mentioned that there's this scientist who petitions the emperor to try to save Earth's sun from total destruction, and yeah. faces a lot of political opposition. And yeah. I felt like that was, um, you know, symbolic or, or symptomatic or something of, of the role of scientists today. Do you, what do you, do you feel like, I, I assume you think that scientists are, are warning of all these impending catastrophes and are not being heeded the way that they should, or is that how you feel? Yeah, yeah. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Eventually the wolf arrives. And I think we're staring at some very significant problems and paying very little attention to them. I've heard you say a bunch of times that politicians focus on what's urgent and not on what's important. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the nature of the game. Science looks at what's important, but very often is not paid enough attention in time. I mean, there was a movement in the last year or two to try to get more scientists to run for public office, to try to get just more scientific expertise into those decision-making conversations. Do you think that that's uh, – what do you think about that? I don't think having the scientists run for public office is going to do much good because most of them wouldn't, you know, wouldn't know how to do it and would be easily defeated. I think the important thing is to get the politicians to hire good science. And, and get good scientific advice. But most politicians don't understand science or are actively opposed to it. I mean, I always sort of feel like I, I, I hope my hope is that science fiction will get a, you know, a broader segment of the public interested in science. And then that'll sort of trickle up to the the decision makers in Washington. Well, what you've got to do to make that vision come true is get control of the educational system across the country because kids are taught in school that science is dull and difficult. Right. And and certainly when I was, I don't know if this is different now, but when I was in school, there was just a lot of hostility to science fiction among teachers that I had, uh, yeah. which really alienated me as a student. And so, yeah, I, I yeah. just, I hope any, uh, I hope we can get more, more science fiction into the classroom. That would help. All right. Let's make that happen. <laughs> okay. You do your part and I'll do mine. <laughs> All right. Great. So yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Ben Bova about his book, New Frontiers. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us. You made it a pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. 
So big thanks again to Ben Bova for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.